Section 09 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 09, Volume 1, Chapter 4. From Madeira to the Barrier, Part 1. On the following morning we anchored in Funchal Roads. My brother was to arrive at Funchal by arrangement, early enough to be sure of proceeding us there. It was, however, a good while before we saw anything of him, and we were already flattering ourselves that we had arrived first when he was suddenly observed in a boat coming under our stern. We were able to tell him that all was well on board, and he brought us a big packet of letters and newspapers that gave us news of home. A little officious gentleman who said he was a doctor, and as such had come in an official capacity to inquire as to the state of our health, was in an amazing hurry to leave the ship again, when at the top of the gangway he found himself confronted with a score of dogs' jaws, which at the moment were opened wide on account of the heat. The learned man's interest in our health had suddenly vanished. His thoughts flew to the safety of his own life and limbs. As Funchal was the last place where we could communicate with the outside world, arrangements were made for completing our supplies in every possible way, and in particular we had to take on board all the fresh water we could. The consumption of this commodity would be very large, and the possibility of running short had to be avoided at any price. For the time being we could no more than fill all our tanks and every imaginable receptacle with the precious fluid, and this was done. We took about a thousand gallons in the longboat that was carried just above the main hatch, this was rather a risky experiment which might have had awkward consequences in the event of the vessel rolling, but we consoled ourselves with the hope of fine weather and a smooth sea during the next few weeks. During the stay at Funchal, the dogs had two good meals of fresh meat as a very welcome variety in their diet. A fair-sized carcass of a horse disappeared with impressive rapidity at each of these banquets. For our own use, we naturally took a plentiful supply of vegetables and fruits, which were here to be had in abundance. It was the last opportunity we should have of regaling ourselves with such luxuries. Our stay at Funchal was somewhat longer than was intended at first, as the engineers found it necessary to take up the propeller 
and examined the brasses. This work would occupy two days, and while the three mechanics were toiling in the heat, the rest of the ship's company took the opportunity of becoming acquainted with the town and its surroundings. The crew had a day's leave, half at a time. An excursion was arranged to one of the numerous hotels that are situated on the heights of the town. The ascent is easily made by means of a funicular railway, and in the course of the half hour it takes to reach the top, one is able to get an idea of the luxuriant fertility of the island. At the hotels one finds a good cuisine, and, of course, still better wine. It is scarcely necessary to add that we did full justice to both. For the descent, a more primitive means of transport was employed. We came down on sledges. It may be startling to hear of sledging in Madeira, but I must explain that the sledges had wooden runners and that the road was paved with a black stone that was very smooth. We went at a creditable pace down the steep inclines, each sledge being drawn or pushed by three or four swarthy natives who seemed to be possessed of first-rate legs and lungs. It may be mentioned as a curiosity that the newspapers of Funchal did not hesitate to connect our expedition with the South Pole. The native journalists had no idea of the value of the startling piece of news they were circulating. It was a canard invented on the supposition that when a polar ship steers to the south, she must, of course, be making for the South Pole. In this case, the canard happened to be true. Fortunately for us, it did not fly beyond the shores of Madeira. By the afternoon of September 9, we could begin to make our preparations for departure. The engineers had replaced the propeller and tested it. All supplies were on board, and the chronometers had been checked. All that remained was to get rid of the importunate bumboat, men who swarmed around the vessel in their little craft, each looking like a small floating shop. These obtrusive fellows were quickly sent off down the gangway. Besides ourselves, only my brother was left on board. Now that we were thus completely isolated from the outer world, the long-expected moment had arrived when I could proceed to inform all my comrades of my decision, now a year old, to make for the south. I believe all who were on board will long remember that sultry afternoon in Funchal Roads. All hands were called on deck. What they thought of, I do not know, but it was hardly Antarctica and the South Pole. Lieutenant Nilsen carried a big rolled-up chart. I could see that this chart was the object of many interrogative glances. Not many words were needed before everyone could see where the wind lay and what course we should steer henceforward. 
the second in command unrolled his big chart of the southern hemisphere and i briefly explained the extended plan as well as my reasons for keeping it secret until this time now and again i had to glance at their faces at first as might be expected they showed the most unmistakable signs of surprise but this expression swiftly changed and before i had finished they were all bright with smiles i was now sure of the answer i should get when i finally asked each man whether he was willing to go on and as the names were called every single man had his yes ready although as i have said i had expected it to turn out as it did it is difficult to express the joy i felt at seeing how promptly my comrades placed themselves at my service on this momentous occasion it appeared however that i was not the only one who was pleased there was so much life and good spirits on board that evening that one would have thought the work was successfully accomplished instead of being hardly begun for the present however there was not much time to spare for discussing the news we had first to see about getting away afterwards there would be many months before us two hours grace was allowed in which every man could write to his people at home about what had just passed the letters were probably not long ones at all events and they were soon finished the mail was handed over to my brother to take to christiania from whence the letters were sent to their respective destinations but this did not take place until after the alteration of our plans had been published in the press it had been easy enough to tell my comrades the news and they could not have given it a better reception it was another question what people at home would say when the intelligence reached their ears we afterwards heard that both favorable and unfavorable opinions were expressed for the moment we could not trouble ourselves very greatly with that side of the matter my brother had undertaken to announce the way we had taken and i cannot say that i envied him the task after we had all given him a final hearty shake of the hand he left us and thereby our communications with the busy world was broken off we were left to our own resources no one can say that the situation oppressed us greatly our long voyage was entered upon as though it were a dance there was not a trace of the more or less melancholy feeling that usually accompanies any parting the men joked and laughed while witticisms both good and bad were bandied about on the subject of our original situation the anchor came up more quickly than usual and after the motor had helped us to escape from the oppressive heat of the harbor we had the satisfaction of seeing every sail filled with a fresh and cooling 
northeast trade. The dogs, who must have found the stay at Funchal rather too warm for their taste, expressed their delight at the welcome breeze by getting up a concert. We felt we could not grudge them the pleasure this time. It was pure enjoyment to come on deck the morning after leaving Madeira. There was an added note of friendliness in every man's good morning, and a smile twinkled in the corner of every eye. The entirely new turn things had taken, and the sudden change to fresh fields for thought and imagination acted as a beneficent stimulus to those who, the day before, had contemplated a trip round the horn. I think what chiefly amused them was their failure to smell a rat before. How could I have been such an ass as not to think of it long ago, said Beck, as he sent a nearly new quid into the sea. Of course, it was as plain as a pike staff. Here we are with all these dogs, this fine observation house, with its big kitchen range and shiny cloth on the table and everything else. Any fool might have seen what it meant. I consoled him with the remark that it is always easy to be wise after the event and that I thought it very lucky no one had discovered our destination prematurely. Those of us who had been obliged hitherto to keep to themselves what they knew and to resort to all kinds of stratagems to avoid making any disclosure were certainly no less pleased at being rid of the secret. Now they could talk freely to their heart's content. If we had previously had to resort to mystification, there was now nothing to prevent our laying our cards on the table. So many a conversation had come to a standstill because those who had a number of questions to ask did not dare to put them, and those who could have told held their tongues. Hereafter, it would be a very long time before we were at a loss for subjects of conversation. A theme had suddenly presented itself, so varied and comprehensive that it was difficult at first to know where to begin. There were many men on board the Fram with a wealth of experience gained during years spent within the Arctic Circle, but to almost all of us, the great Antarctic continent was a terra incognita. I myself was the only man on board who had seen Antarctica. Perhaps one or two of my companions had in former days passed in the vicinity of an Antarctic iceberg on a voyage round Cape Horn, but that was all. What had previously been accomplished in the way of exploration in the south and the narratives of the men who had endeavored to extend our knowledge of that inhospitable continent were also things that very few of the ship's company had had time or opportunity to study, nor had they perhaps had any reason to do so. 
Now there was every possible reason. I considered it an imperative necessity that every man should acquaint himself as far as possible with the work of previous expeditions. This was the only way of becoming in some measure familiar with the conditions in which we should have to work. For this reason, the Fram carried a whole library of Antarctic literature containing everything that has been written by the long succession of explorers in these regions from James Cook and James Clark Ross to Captain Scock and Sir Ennis Shackleton. And, indeed, good use was made of this library. The works of the two last-name explorers were in chief request. They were read from cover to cover by all who could do so, and, well-written and excellently illustrated as these narratives are, they were highly instructive. But if ample time was thus devoted to the theoretical study of our problem, the practical preparations were not neglected. As soon as we were in the trade winds, where the virtually constant direction and force of the wind permitted a reduction of the watch on deck, the various specialists went to work to put our extensive wintering outfit in the best possible order. It is true that every precaution had been taken beforehand to have every part of the equipment as good and as well adapted to its purpose as possible, but the whole of it, nevertheless, required a thorough overhauling. With so complicated an outfit as ours was, one is never really at the end of one's work. It will always be found that some improvement or other can be made. It will appear later that we had our hands more than full of the preparations for the sledge journey, not only during the long sea voyage, but also during the still longer Antarctic winter. Our sailmaker, Ronnie, was transformed into a, well, let us call it tailor. Ronnie's pride was a sewing machine which he had obtained from the yard at Horton after considerable use of his persuasive tongue. His greatest sorrow on the voyage was that, on arriving at the barrier, he would be obliged to hand over his treasure to the shore party. He could not understand what we wanted with a sewing machine at Franheim. The first thing he did when the Fram reached Buenos Aires was to explain to the local representative of the Singer Sewing Machine Company how absolutely necessary it was to have his loss made good. His gift of persuasion helped him again, and he got a new machine. For that matter, it was not surprising that Ronnie was fond of his machine. He could use it for all sorts of things. Sailmakers, shoemakers, saddlers, and tailors' work was all turned out with equal celerity. He established his workshop in the chart house, and there the machine hummed incessantly through the tropics, the west wind belt and the ice flows too, for quick as our sailmaker was with his fingers, 
the orders poured in even more quickly. Ronnie was one of those men whose ambition it is to get as much work as possible done in the shortest possible time, and with increasing astonishment he saw that here he would never be finished. He might go at it as hard as he liked. There was always something more. To reckon up all that he delivered from his workshop during these months would take us too long. It is enough to say that all the work was remarkably well done and executed with admirable rapidity. Perhaps one of the things he personally prided himself most on having made was the little three-man tent which was afterwards left at the South Pole. It was a little masterpiece of a tent made of thin silk which when folded together would easily have gone into a fair-sized pocket and weighed hardly a kilogram. At this time we could not count with certainty on the possibility of all those who made the southern journey reaching latitude 90 degrees. On the contrary, we had to be prepared for the probability of some of the party being obliged to turn back. It was intended that we should use the tent in question in case it might be decided to let two or three men make the final dash and therefore it was made as small and light as possible. Fortunately we had no need to use it as every man reached the goal and we then found that the best way of disposing of Ronnie's work of art was to let it stay there as a mark. Our sailmaker had no dogs of his own to look after. He had no time for that. On the other hand, he often assisted me in attending to my 14 friends up on the bridge, but he seemed to have some difficulty in getting on terms of familiarity with the dogs and all that belonged to them. It did not quite agree with his idea of life on board ship to have a deck swarming with dogs. He regarded this abnormal state of things with a sort of scornful compassion. So you carry dogs too aboard the ship, he would say, every time he came on deck and found himself face to face with the brutes. The poor brutes, I am sure, made no attempt to attack Ronnie's person more than anyone else's, but he seemed for a long time to have great doubts about it. I don't think he felt perfectly safe until the dogs had been muzzled. As part of our equipment to which we gave special care was, of course, the ski. In all probability they would be our chief weapon in the coming fight. However much we might have to learn from Scott's and Shackleton's narratives, it was difficult for us to understand their statements that the use of ski on the barrier was not a success. From the descriptions that were given of the nature of the surface and the general conditions, we were forced to the opposite conclusion that ski were the only means to employ. Nothing was spared to provide a good skiing outfit, and we had an experienced man in charge of it, Olav Jelland. It is sufficient to mention his name. When on leaving Norway, it was a question of finding a good place 
for our twenty pairs of ski. We found we should have to share our own quarters with them. They were all disposed under the ceiling of the fore cabin. At any rate, we had no better place to put them. Jarlan, who during the last month or two had tried his hand at the unaccustomed work of a seaman, went back to his old trade of ski-maker and carpenter when we came into the trade winds. Both ski and bindings were delivered ready for use by Hagen and Company of Christiania. It remained to adapt them and fit the back straps to each man's boots so that all might be ready for use on arrival at the barrier. A full skiing outfit had been provided for every man so that those who were to be left on board might also have a run now and then during their stay at the ice edge. For each of our ten sledges, Jalan made during the voyage a pair of loose runners, which it was intended to use in the same way as the Eskimo used theirs. These primitive people have, or at any event had, no material that was suited for shoeing sledge runners. They got over the difficulty by covering the runners with a coating of ice. No doubt it requires a great deal of practice and patience to put on this kind of shoeing properly, but when it is once on there can be no question that this device throws all others into the shade. As I say, we had intended to try this on the barrier. We found, however, that the pulling power of our teams was so good as to allow us to retain our steel-shod runners with an easy conscience. For the first fourteen days after leaving Madeira, the northeast trade was fresh enough to enable us to keep up our average rate, or a little more, with the help of the sails alone. The engine was therefore allowed a rest, and the engineers had an opportunity of cleaning and polishing it. This they did early and late, till it seems as if they could never get it bright enough. Nordvelt now had a chance of devoting himself to the occupation which is his delight in this world, that of the blacksmith, and indeed there was opportunity enough for his use of the hammer and anvil. If Ronnie had plenty of sewing, Notvelt had no less forging, sledge fittings, knives, pickaxes, bars and bolts, patent hooks by the hundred for dogs, chains, and so on to infinity. The clang and sparks of the anvil were going all day long, till we were well into the Indian Ocean, and in the westerly belt of the blacksmith's lot was not an enviable one. It is not always easy to hit the nail on the head when one's feet rest on so unstable a foundation as the Fram's deck, nor is it altogether pleasant when the forge is filled with water several times a day. While we were fitting out for the voyage, the cry was constantly raised in certain quarters at home that the old Fram's hull was in a shocking state. It was said to be in bad repair, to leak like a sieve, 
in fact, to be altogether rotten. It throws a curious light on these reports when we look at the voyages that the Fram has accomplished in the last two years. For twenty months out of the twenty-four, she has kept going in open sea, and that too in waters which make very serious demands on a vessel's strength. She is just as good as when she sailed and could easily do it all over again without any repairs. We who were on board all knew perfectly well before we sailed how groundless and foolish these cries about her rottenness were. We knew, too, that there is scarcely a wooden ship afloat on which it is not necessary to use the pumps now and then. When the engine was stopped, we found it was sufficient to take a ten-minute turn at the hump at the hand pump every morning. That was all the leaking amounted to. Oh no, there was nothing wrong with the Fram's hull. On the other hand, there might be a word or two to say about the rigging. If this was not all it should have been, the fault lay entirely with the plaguy considerations of our budget. On the foremast we had two square sails. There ought to have been four. On the jib boom there were two stay sails. There was room enough for three, but the money would not run to it. In the trades we tried to make up for the deficiency by rigging a studding sail alongside the foresail and a sky sail above the topsail. I will not assert that these improved sails contributed to improve the vessel's appearance, but they got her along, and that is a great deal more important. We made very fair progress southward during these September days, and before the month was half over we had come a good way into the tropical belt. No particularly tropical heat was felt at any rate by us men, and as a rule the heat is not severely felt on board ship in open sea so long as the vessel is moving. On a sailing ship lying becalmed with the sun in the zenith, it might be warmer than one would wish, but in case of calms we had the engines to help us and know that there was always a little breeze, that is, on deck. Down below it was worse, sometimes hoggishly mild, as Beck used to put it. Our otherwise comfortable cabins had one fault. There were no portholes in the ship's side, and therefore we could not get a draught but most of us managed without shifting our quarters. Of the two saloons, the fore saloon was decidedly preferable in warm weather. In a cold climate, probably the reverse would be the case. We were able to secure a thorough draft of air forward through the alleyway yielding to the forecastle. It was difficult to get a good circulation aft where they also had the warm proximity of the engines. The engineers, of course, had the hottest place, but the ever-invented Sunbeck devised a means of improving the ventilation of the engine room so that even there they were not so badly off under the circumstances. One often hears it asked, which is to be preferred, severe heat or severe cold? It is not easy to give a definite answer, neither of the two is pleasant, 
and it must remain a matter of taste which is least so. On board ship, no doubt, most people will vote for heat. As even if the days are rather distressing, one has a glorious night to make up for them. A bitterly cold day is poorly compensated for by an even colder night. One decided advantage of warm climate for men who have to be frequently in and out of their clothes and their bunks is the simplicity of costume which it allows. When you wear hardly anything, it takes a very short time to dress. If we had been able to take the opinion of our dogs on their existence in the tropics, they would probably have answered as one dog, Thanks. Let us get back to rather cooler surroundings. Their coats were not exactly calculated for a temperature of 90 degrees in the shade, and the worst of it was that they could not change them. It is, by the way, a misunderstanding to suppose that these animals absolutely must have hard frost to be comfortable. On the contrary, they prefer to be nice and warm. Here in the tropics, of course, they had rather too much of a good thing, but they did not suffer from the heat. By stretching awnings over the whole ship, we contrived that they should all be constantly in the shade, and so long as they were not directly exposed to the sun's rays, there was no fear of anything going wrong. How well they came through, it appears, best from the fact that not one of them was on the sick list on account of the heat. During the whole voyage, only two deaths occurred from sickness. One was the case of a bitch that died after giving birth to eight pups, which might just as easily have caused her death under other conditions. What was the cause of death in the other case, we were unable to find out. At any rate, it was not an infectious disease. One of our greatest fears was the possibility of an epidemic among the dogs, but thanks to the care with which they had been picked, there was never a sign of anything of the sort. In the neighborhood of the equator, between the northeast and the southeast trades, lies what is called the Belt of Calms. The position and extent of this belt vary somewhat with the season. If you are extremely lucky, it may happen that one trade wind will practically take you over into the other, but as a rule, this region will cause quite a serious delay to sailing ships. Either there are frequent calms or shifting and unsteady winds. We arrived there at an unfavorable time of the year and lost the northeast trade as early as 10 degrees north of the line. If we had had the calm we looked for, we could have got across with the help of the engine in a reasonably short time, but we saw very little sign of calm. As a rule, there was an obstinate south wind blowing and would not have taken very much of it to make the last few degrees of north latitude stiffer than we cared for. The delay was annoying enough, but we had another disappointment of a more serious kind. For, curiously enough, we never had a proper shower of rain. Generally, in these latitudes, one encounters extremely heavy downpours, which make it possible to collect water by the barrelful in a very short space of time. 
we had hoped in this way to increase our store of fresh water, which was not so large, but that extreme economy had to be practiced if we were to avoid running short. However, and this hope failed us, practically speaking. We managed to catch a little water, but it was altogether insufficient, and the husbanding of our supply had to be enforced in future with authority. The dogs required their daily ration, and they got it, measured out to a hair's breadth. Our own consumption was limited to what was strictly necessary. Soups were banished from the bill of fare. They used too much of the precious fluid. Washing in fresh water was forbidden. It must not be supposed that this that we had no opportunity of washing. We had a plentiful supply of soap, which lathered just as well in salt water as in fresh, and was thus capable of keeping ourselves and our clothes as clean as before. If for a time we had felt a certain anxiety about our water supply, these fears were banished comparatively quickly, as the reserve we had taken in the longboat on deck lasted an incredibly long time, almost twice as long as we had dared to hope, and this saved the situation, or very nearly so. If the worst came to the worst, we should be obliged to call it one of the numerous groups of islands that would lie in our route later on. For over six weeks the dogs had now been chained up in the places assigned to them when they came on board. In the course of that time, most of them had become so tame and tractable that we thought we might soon let them loose. This would be a welcome change for them, and what was more important, it would give them an opportunity for exercise. To tell the truth, we all expected some amusement from it. There would certainly be a proper shindy when all this pack got loose. But before we gave them their liberty, we were obliged to disarm them. Otherwise, the inevitable free fight would be liable to result in one or more of them being left on the battlefield, and we could not afford that. Every one of them was provided with a strong muzzle. Then we let them loose and waited to see what would happen. At first, nothing at all happened. It looked as if they had abandoned once and for all the thought of ever moving from the spot they had occupied so long. At last a solitary individual had the bright idea of attempting a walk along the deck, but he should not have done so. It was dangerous to move about there. The unaccustomed sight of a loose dog at once aroused his nearest neighbors. A dozen of them flung themselves upon the unfortunate animal who had been the first to leave his place, rejoicing in the thought of planting their teeth in his sinful body. But to their disappointment, the enjoyment was not so great as they expected. The confounded strap around their jaws made it impossible to get hold of the skin. The utmost they could do was to pull a few tufts of hair out of the object of their violent onslaught. This affair of outposts gave the signal for a general engagement all along the line. What an unholy row there was for the next couple of hours. The hair flew, but skins remained intact. The muzzles saved a good many lives that afternoon. These fights are the chief amusement of the Eskimo dogs. They follow the sport with genuine passion. There would be no great objection to it if they had not the peculiar habit of always combining 
to set upon a single dog, who is chosen as their victim for the occasion. They all make for this one, and if they are left to themselves, they will not stop until they have made an end of the poor beast. In this way, a valuable dog may be destroyed in a moment. We therefore naturally made every effort from the first to quench their love of fighting, and the dogs very soon began to understand that we were not particularly fond of their combats, but we adhered to deal with a natural characteristic, which it is impossible to eradicate. In any case, one could never be sure that nature would not reassert itself over discipline. When the dogs had once been let loose, they remained free to run about wherever they liked for the remainder of the voyage. Only at mealtime were they tied up. It was quite extraordinary how they managed to hide themselves in every hole and corner. On some mornings there was hardly a dog to be seen when daylight came. Of course, they visited every place where they ought not to have gone. Several of them repeatedly took the opportunity of tumbling into the forehold when the hatches were open, but a fall of twenty-five feet did not seem to trouble them in the least. One even found his way into the engine room, difficult as it might seem to gain access to it, and curled himself up between the piston rods. Fortunately for the visitor, the engine was not started while he was there. When the first furious battles had been fought out, a calm soon settled upon the dog's spirits. It was easy to notice a feeling of shame and disappointment in the champions when they found that all their efforts led to nothing. The sport had lost its principal charm as soon as they saw what a poor chance there was of tasting blood. From what has here been said, and perhaps from other accounts of the nature of Arctic dogs, it may appear as though the mutual relations of these animals consisted exclusively of fighting. This, however, is far from being the case. On the contrary, they very often force friendships which are sometimes so strong that one dog simply cannot live without the other. Before we let the dogs loose, we had remarked that there were a few who, for some reason or other, did not seem as happy as they should have been. They were more shy and restless than the others. No particular notice was taken of this, and no one tried to find out the cause of this. The day we left them loose, we discovered what had been the matter with the ones that had moped. They had some old friend who had chanced to be placed in some other part of the deck, and this separation had been the cause of their low spirits. It was really touching to see the joy they showed on meeting again. They became quite different animals. Of course, in these cases, a change of places was arranged between the different groups, so that those who had associated from their own inclination would in future be members of the same team. End of section 9 Recording by Dick Durrett Manchester, New Hampshire, USA